Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson, and with me today, as I guess you always are, is... Lucas Stock. Hopefully. Yeah, boy. Hopefully. You're here, kind of, in digital spheres. Uh, (laughs) This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. We thank you for joining us as we explore, discuss, grow, debate, laugh, joke, all that as followers of Christ. So, um, Lucas... At this point, we haven't really ever said this on air. Um, it may be on our social media a few times and in emails, but we have a sponsor. We have a sponsor. Which, like that blows my mind that <laughs> our little podcast has a sponsor, and it's not like, you know, it's not like small little church down the road wants to sponsor us. Who who which is would our be sponsor? Awesome, but it would be right. Uh, we are extremely thankful, humbled, excited to get to talk a little bit about Logos Bible Software, which has partnered with us and has sponsored the Doxology podcast. Uh, If you don't know what Logos is, it is Bible software, and that's all you need to know. (laughs) All right. It's um, an amazing platform to use and access tools and resources for sermon prep, language study, Bible study. You can make prayer lists and workflows you can access digitally. I mean, I'm sure it's not literally infinite books and resources of knowledge, but it feels pretty infinite. And it's ever growing. It's always growing. And the thing is, like, you can take it anywhere. Like, Hannah and I have one bookshelf with, like, most of my theology books, but then all of our other books that don't fit on the bookshelf are kind of like stacked on the floor. And if, you know, if we want to travel somewhere, I can't bring my entire commentary set on the New Testament. I can't bring all of the theology books that I want to read, but Logos can go anywhere on your mobile device, on your, you know, if you have an iPad, on your computer. So you're, you're taking thousands of books with you everywhere you go. Yeah. And I mean, just, just off the top of my head, some of the resources that that are in the package that that I, that we use um, is there's this one book that's just a collection of creeds and confessions and and um, those sorts of confessional documents throughout the history of the church in their original Greek and Latin and whatnot and Russian yeah. <laughs> and Slavic or whatever uh, and I can just access that in my pocket I can't read any of it currently but um, <laughs> I also maybe someday for the the recent uh, episode on Perpetua and Felicity for our Christians of History series, I hmm. uh, was able to access a, a, a book through Lagos called 131 Christians Everyone uh, Should Know, I think is the name of it. Hmm. And I got to read through um, the story of Perpetua and Felicity right. on my laptop in, with a book that I didn't know that didn't know about and don't have in person. And I was able to access thanks to Lagos. And those are that's just some like a couple of really small cool examples of, of what right you know what it's what, what it's like to use logos it's so much deeper than that like i said and it's almost like it, 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 you might be overwhelmed at first if you are someone who ends up getting it because there just is so much going on and so much that you can have access to but like logos makes it really easy with i mean i don't know about you i've been getting like emails every week like about training like have mm-hmm. you learned have you watched this video or done this mm-hmm. session to like learn how to do this or to do this and i mean for a lot of people it, you know maybe they like well I don't need that sort of thing I'm not a pastor I'm not preaching but it isn't made just for 
pastors. And the other thing too, is they have many different tiers of, of packages. So they have like, I forget all the like, you know, silver, gold, platinum. Right. Um, but they have like some really, really, really crazy, like every book you could probably ever think of packages, right. which, you know, if you're like a scholar, academic, theologian, pastor, you're going to want to use that. But for your average layperson, they have really good packages that mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're studying your Bible and you're like, I don't know what this passage is teaching and you don't have a commentary set, you don't have access to one. It's really easy just to pull it up. Um, so it's, it's, it's convenient in that way. And it's really, it's made for all types of people, both lay and, you know, pastors. Yeah. And if you get a package and then you realize, oh, I I would like to access this resource, but it's not in the package I paid for, you can just purchase the resource and and have access to it. And so it's always, like you said, usually cheaper than like an actual, like physical copy. Right. Yeah. And, And and like you said, it's ever growing. So as you know, your Logos collection can grow with you as your study grows, as new resources get added, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they do do free freebies every so often. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's like maybe once a month they give away some pretty good resources for free. Which it's is nice. in, an incredible uh, tool, an incredible collection of tools, and a really awesome. Um, and while very broad and deep, also user-friendly um, platform to use. And we're, again, just super excited and grateful that Lagos uh, has decided to sponsor us and partner with us. And if you want to find out more, um, you can go to Lagos, L-O-G-O-S, dot com slash Doxology Podcast to find out more information, take a look at different um, different the different packages of resources that they offer, and, you know, get started with your own Lagos suite, which... Yeah. Cannot recommend enough. So sweet. Thank you to Lagos. And now, without further ado, we will bounce right into today's topic, which we are continuing our little series on the Evangelical Baptist Catholicity Manifesto um, from the Center for Baptist Renewal, which we talked about last week. And we, we covered Articles 1 through 4, and we're moving on to Articles uh, 5 through 8 today. Mm-hmm. So, before we jump in, you got you want to bring anybody up to speed on about about the manifesto yeah, think, or about anything, or what do you think? Yeah, I can't remember if in our last episode, because it's been a little bit since we recorded that episode, um, I don't remember if I mentioned the fact that these guys who are a part of this Center for Baptist Renewal, they actually just had a book come out called Baptists and the Christian Tradition. So if this is something that you're wanting to learn even more about, like more than what you'd find on the website, more than that, more than what you'll hear here in the podcast, um, that's going to that's gonna be a great resource for you. Um, it's, uh, you know, like 400 some pages written by a number of contributing authors. Um, the guys who are, you know, with the Center for Baptist Renewal, I believe they're the ones who are um, like the general editors um, so they're the ones that sort of compiled these articles, but I think it's going to be, you know, a really good book. I've already seen it all over my Twitter. I don't know about you, but <laughs> um, I'm, I, I, I purchased it this week. I've, I've just barely started scratching the surface of it, so I'm excited to dive in. But yeah, like I said, I didn't know if I mentioned that in our last episode, um, but definitely check it out if this has been interesting for you. Definitely. So you so, wanna you wanna bring us into Article Five? Let's do it. So Article Five of the Baptist Catholicity Manifesto says, we encourage a critical but charitable engagement with the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ, both past and present. We believe that Baptists have much to contribute as well as to receive in the great collection of traditions that constitute the Holy Catholic Church 
and that's universal Catholic. We believe that we are traditioned, and that's in quotes, like traditioned creatures, and that we should move beyond the false polarities of an individualistic modernity and a relevant, uh, relativistic post-modernity. Easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So there's a lot here. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in and try to unpack a little bit of it. Yeah, I mean, I think we can kind of just go bit by bit through it. Um a critical but charitable engagement with the whole church. I really like that because, again, as I've mentioned ad nauseum, I'm not a Baptist, so maybe I would be less critical of certain aspects of the whole church than some Baptists would be. But the point is um, critical, not meaning, oh, I'm going to sit here and nitpick people I disagree with, but critical as in not just swallowing something whole without thinking about it is kind of how I read that, is we're going to engage critically with the other traditions that make up the church, meaning we're going to take in theologians and teachings from other groups wisely and with with a level of discernment. You know, I think of the Bereans in Acts who are comparing everything they heard from the apostles to what they found in Scripture. Mm. Um, But also charitable, not sitting here nitpicking everything, but wanting to hear, wanting to learn, wanting to, to be in dialogue with those other aspects and traditions in the church, both past and present, as it says. So I really like that framework yeah. uh, of, I do too. Of, of not just engaging with the whole church, but specifically engaging in a critical and charitable way. Um, I think right. it's really and helpful think- for, for pretty much every aspect of, of discussion, really. Yeah, and what what I really like about this is, you know, especially you know, depending on what camp you fall in, if you're Reformed, if you're you know, like you Anglican, if you're just a Southern Baptist, it can be really easy to, I guess, like have tunnel vision when it comes to what you read, what you um, discuss, the people that you follow, and so in my mind, this this sort of like broadens those horizons that you know, you, we don't have to like agree with every single dot that we read on a piece of paper. Um, but to to be charitable, to engage both, you know, patristic era, medieval era, um, you know, reformational era, modern era, and to to do so um, for the sake of like gathering, not just gathering information, but learning from the whole council of church history, because it's not like we appeared in a vacuum one day out of nowhere. But as we've said before, like we've been built upon a foundation that has already been laid. We're standing on these these shoulders of those who have who have come before us. And there's a lot we can learn, both in their mistakes and in their, you know, successes that can help us to move forward as Baptists, as Anglicans, as Lutherans, as what, what, wherever we find ourselves, we can we can move forward um, critically but but charitably. So I I really like that first sentence there. Yeah, and I think that's a really good um, transition to to what it says next about having much to contribute and much to receive from the great, as they say, the great collection of traditions that make up the church. It, the reason that, that I think they're framing this engagement in this way is exactly to receive and give, um, and giving have and receiving <laughs> and having and giving. <laughs> um, it is a love based on giving and receiving, as well as having and sharing. And the love that they give and have is shared and received. 
And through this having and giving and sharing and receiving, we too can share and love and have and receive. Oh, Joey. What a hero. Um, <laughs> to, to engage with because there's so much to learn and so much to offer um, across denominational or, or traditional lines. And I think that's really important to recognize. And it, and it really, it, it, it doesn't only apply to one group. You know, it's not just like, oh, you over there, you need to figure out that you've got a lot to learn from me. But we all can and should approach each other as as Christians of different stripes. Uh, people approach each other as people who can learn from each other. And that means, you know, I think, again, I think of, of the example in the New Testament, Paul, oh, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember um, who he's who he's writing to, but he talks about being encouraged mutually by by him encouraging the church that he's writing to in his faith and their faith encouraging um, encouraging him. I, I, I can't remember which which uh, book that's in. But anyway, um, where, you know, if we want to think about Baptists and Roman Catholics and, and Lutherans and, um, you know, these different groups that have very different practices, very different histories, especially as time goes on, there are still things to learn from each other. And that doesn't, that isn't limited to certain groups learning from other certain groups, but Baptists have much to contribute as well as much to receive. And that's exactly true of, of all of us. And I think that that's the goal of this critical and charitable engagement they're talking about. And I think that that's something that everybody really should learn from um, because otherwise we'll get, like you said, too tunnel visioned into our own tradition or into ignoring another tradition that has produced saints and, and thinkers and theologians that are uh, have, have much to teach us and, and that we can really benefit from. Um, yeah. I think we, I think just as humans, we have sort of an arrogance to think that our tradition is the only one that well maybe matters or that can, is the only tradition that can contribute meaningfully um, to the whole and that's that's something that I think I've been guilty of. Maybe not like outwardly. It's not like I've actually said that, but by you know only reading a narrow, you know, selection of, of writers and authors, or by um, only being like, well, I, I I can only be Reformed Baptist, so I have to follow Reformed Baptists and only think about Reformed Baptists. I can't think about um, you know people outside of my tradition. Um, but I think we would be we would all be greatly greatly benefited if we would just step out of our, maybe our comfort zone, step out of our, our theological tradition, not to say that you have to abandon everything you believe, but to, um, like I've said already, just to sort of broaden get an even wider picture. Right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, you're, you're going to see things that you haven't seen before. And I, I mean, that's that really the, like the whole point of our podcast. And this is sort of, I, I remember, you know, when we were just sort of pitching the idea of doing this together, you know, we said we wanted something that would be educational um and it's not that we're saying things that are new it's not mm -hmm. like the things that we've said are somehow like revolutionary it's not even that we're experts on any given topic right. but we're we're growing as we discuss these things as we learn um and by broadening my horizons i mean we become more robust more educated um more prepared for conversations more 
I don't know, maybe more willing and able to converse with people who don't agree with us and to do so charitably. Because again, mm, yeah, that's something that I think, you know, Twitter is the greatest example of this, but just a very <laughs> poor ability to engage charitably with one another. Everyone just seems to be like, I'm right, you're wrong, leave me alone. And, you know, there, there's very little love and I don't know. That's, yeah, that's no. why I really like this idea here. 100%. Yeah, and then and then this article concludes with with I think one of the most exciting statements <laughs> that they have, which is, Ooh. we believe that we are traditioned creatures, um, which, you know, just to sort of frame what what that's talking about, like we, we don't like you said earlier, we don't we meaning as individuals or as Baptists or Protestants or whatever, we don't exist in a vacuum. Our church, our denomination, our tradition. Um, our culture, our theology, it didn't just appear randomly one day. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. Um, but we come from, we are formed in a line of, of tradition that, that is handed down. And um, that means we should move, be as they say, we should move beyond the false polarities. So that these like two sort of extremes that I think in our culture, it's really easy to see where these come up individualistic modernity so you know it's just it's just me my bible the scientific method i can just figure everything out objectively and i and i don't need anything that comes before me i don't need anybody else with me it's just it's just me as an island i'm figuring out you know what's true or i'm figuring out what to believe or relative relativistic post-modernity where everybody you know and, and this obviously can have caricatures both of these extremes where people you know like straw men but but you know the the general idea being it's just me and my bible you know and i can you know objectively study what's true versus um it's just me in my own world and i have my truth and you have your truth and both of those represent extremes that reject ultimately being rooted in a tradition which in this case you know going from narrow, you know, specific to broad, Baptist, Protestant, or, you know, Baptist, Evangelical, Protestant, Christian, Western, Western Christian, Christian, you know, and that being rooted in that 2000 year history, um, I think offers a corrective to being overly relativistic or overly individualistic, both of which I think are mistakes on either side of you know, the narrow way, which is in the middle, if that, you know, hmm. I don't know. Those are the thoughts I have when I, when I read that sentence. And I think it's a really helpful thing to keep in mind. And I also just love when people uh, bash modernity and post-modernity because <laughs> right. I think both of those are not the best, you know, philosophical cultural projects that have ever happened in the history of the world. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm reminded of my time at Moody actually. So when when I was in, I always forget which class because I took three, two well, three total classes, but two classes at the same time with Dr. Johnson. Um, so he talked a lot about tradition. He talked a lot about liturgy, um, and one of the things that you know I came to realize, and it's it's pretty obvious once you really start to think about it. But like we, even outside of the church, we are just traditioned creatures in general. The th if you think about the things that you do every day, 
those are your traditions. Like if you have a routine for how you get ready in the morning, if you have a routine for the route that you take to work, the the way that you interact with your friends, you know, if you, maybe maybe even even simpler, like what's the first thing that you do when you wake up every day? That's a tra- tradition that you have. Maybe you don't think about it that way, um, but because we're traditioned creatures, I think it's really important to be traditioned right to be. Um, you know, to be catechized, not by the world, not by the devil, um, but by the church, by Christ. And um, I don't know, I think that's a, uh, there's not really much I want to add on top of what you said other than that. Like we're, we're, we are traditioned creatures and we ought to be traditioned rightly. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to, to think about it. And, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, we'll, we'll come back to that idea of, of being it, in this manifesto. They'll come back to that idea of be, what it means to be traditioned rightly, what that looks like. Um, right. But before we'll, before that, we'll get, we'll, we'll move on to the next article, which is number six, um, which reads that uh, we affirm that all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, or gender are created in God's image and if they have repented and believed in Christ, are brothers and sisters together in the one body of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Because of this shared imago Dei, Latin for image of God, and because of Christ's saving work among all nations, peoples, and tongues, we believe that one major task of Baptist Catholicity is to promote racial unity, especially within the body of Christ. Wow, Lucas, I can't even believe you'd say that. <laughs> canceled <laughs> canceled um, i find it canceled i find it obviously very timely you know if you're listening oh, to course. this as you know we're recording this in june 2020 there's obviously i mean i mean it's always timely but but i think especially um especially given, for sure especially in this season um you, you know yesterday as we're recording was june 19th which is you know not everywhere but but you know this is the first year i have really been educated on and and thought about and sort of in a small way took part in um celebrating juneteenth the Mm -hmm. the commemoration of when the emancipation proclamation was declared after the civil war in texas and i spent some time reading um martin luther king jr's letter from a birmingham jail which i've heard a lot of quotes from over the years but i've never actually read um and it's it was it was a really really amazing read um i i can't believe how much he packs in there so in such a sh- relatively short letter, like it's probably like a 25, 30 minute read, depending on how fast you read, which isn't that bad. So it's a long letter, but I mean, you know, we read the Bible, so we're used to longer letters, I guess. Um, but yeah, just, just, it's very obviously timely. Um, and I, I, I do find it really interesting. I mean, we can really, you know, this article basically consists of some background on what it means to be human and then an actual, you know, point that they're making that they're putting forward about baptist catholicity so what i find really interesting we'll start with the point that they're putting forward the claim they're making is that a major task of baptist catholicity is to promote racial unity and i find that really interesting that they stick that here it's not it's not a footnote it's not an appendix it's not even the end of the you know it's not like the the last point or whatever it's it's obviously very I mean, as they say, it's a major task is to promote racial unity, which I find really interesting and and um, <laughs> much needed <laughs> uh, in especially uh, in a lot of the, the sort of areas of American Christianity that I think an evangelical Baptist Catholicity manifesto would, would typically be sort of received by. 
I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, maybe more, more Baptistic, non-denominational type evangelical Christianity. Um, I think that everybody, everybody, <laughs> Christian or not, Baptist or not, everybody needs to be concerned with racial unity, racial reconciliation, and you know, and 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 uh, furthering that in their own traditions. Um, so I'm not pointing out Baptist Christianity as as somehow like uniquely in need of of this this work, but um, I do think that. It's, it's exciting to read this it, it, as all of this stuff is going on in the world currently, especially because of the reasoning they give, which is a really robust understanding of the human person based on us being created as God's image and then recreated as brothers and sisters in, in the body of Christ. Um, I, I don't really have anything else to add because this is just such a solid anthropological statement, you know, mm-hmm. for Christians to 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 hammer home the importance and the significance of what what it means to be made and remade uh, in the image of God and in the image of Christ. And then what that actually looks like, you know, boots on the ground is we're brothers and sisters. So we better be right. We better start acting like it, you know. I, I just have never understood, like, well, I know I'm not nearly educated enough to have like a, a real good in-depth conversation on this, but I've just, I've never understood racism or like, I know that we all have prejudice. We all have those, you know, those hidden things within the crevices of our heart where we're hostile towards people. That's just the effect of the fall. Um, but to be overtly racist, like to hate somebody simply because their skin color is different than mine. Like I just, conceptually, in my mind, I have a hard time like understanding that. Um, and especially if you're someone who's a Christian. And I, you know, I, again, this is way above my pay grade to like get into critical race theory, to get into um, social justice warriors and, and all those things like that. This is not the time or the place to to discuss those things. But I, I will say that right now, especially in the midst of what's going on in our world, there are, are a lot of voices in the Christian community that like I'm concerned by some people who are just saying things who are far more fixed on things that really don't matter, or they just seem to be ignoring the actual matters at hand. Like the whole like black lives matter, all lives matter. Like I, that just is, I mean, first of all, that is so like three years ago, but also you're missing the point at hand right now. And so like, you're missing the point I, and you're lame. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I'm just, I'm really, that's why I'm really thankful for, for this, this point right here. And it's almost even worth rereading again, because it's that good to say that we affirm that all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, or gender are created in God's image. And if they have repented and believed in Christ, they are, brothers and sisters together in one body of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So like you're saying about creation and recreation, um, you know, I'm reminded of like what Paul says, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman, but all are one in Christ. Um, Maybe if I want to like hit you where it hurts, uh, we're no longer American, Mexican, Canadian. uh, We're no longer black, white, Hispanic, you know, whatever. 
Uh, we are one in Christ. It's not to say that those things suddenly disappear, that those things suddenly become irrelevant, but those are not what define us anymore. Um, those are not the things that caricaturize us as as being a people. Um, and especially our relations to each other right. are, are no longer being defined by those things. So my relation with, with you has nothing to do with your gender, your race, your nationality, your you know socioeconomic status, but I'm able... To over, we are able to overcome those things in our relationship, not because we're super special, but because we have been made into members of Christ's one body. Right. And I, I want to read this real quick. It's actually from Baptists in the Christian tradition because it came up in an early chapter where, where he's talking about unity. And he says, uh, the church is not only the new covenant people reconciled to God, but is also the new covenant people reconciled to one another. As one new humanity, the once divided Jew and Gentile are together united in Christ. Christ is our peace and establishes among us a sort of unity that negates the worldly divisions that often define societal norms. Where there was once a wall of hostility, there is now common access to the Spirit of God and one new building that has Christ as its perfect cornerstone. And a little bit later he says, Individuals who had nothing in common now have the most vital thing in common and that's Christ. And so that's that's what I mean when I said earlier, like, I just don't understand how you can be racist, especially if you're a Christian. Because if these are the realities of, of Christ's body, that regardless of, of where you're from, because he it says in the second part here, because of the shared Imago Dei, and because of Christ's saving work among all nations, all peoples, and all tongues, like that's, that's the reality of the church. It's not just white Americans who speak English. Um, it's people all across the world, people who we will probably never come into contact with in this life, um, but who, who, who matter not just to God, but, you know, should matter to us too, because they are our brothers. Um, you know, Paul says when he's talking about the body, like the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need for you. Um, but the, the body is the way that it is. And it's, it's many members have its many uses. And so we, we cannot say that someone is unwelcome simply because they look different, talk different, um, have a different socioeconomic status or whatever and it just it saddens me that those those walls divide us but but the wall of hostility has been taken down we are we are united together by something far greater than anything on this earth and so we need to live in that reality definitely yeah so yeah we want to move on to seven yeah let's do it all right seven says we encourage the ongoing affirmation confession and Catechi- how do you pronounce this word? Catechetical. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought, but it seemed like not enough syllables <laughs> or not enough letters to make that. Okay, so we encourage the ongoing affirmation, confession, catechetical use of the three ecumenical creeds and the scriptural insights of the seven ecumenical councils. We believe these confessional documents express well uh, what Thomas Oden called the consensual tradition. That is the deposit of faith taught in Holy Scripture and received by the church throughout space and time. All righty. Well, so what do you think, man? I think first things first, we got a couple of, I don't know, churchy, jargony words. So ecu- yep. <laughs> ecumenical, ecumenical. We should probably figure out what that means because um, it talks about three ecumenical creeds and seven ecumenical councils. Mm-hmm. So. The word ecumenical um, basically means 
it's very similar to the word Catholic. Um, my understanding is in, in originally in Greek, the, the Greek word that we get ecumenical from w- was was in reference to the entire empire. So if something was an, an ecumenical, you know, statement, it was a statement that applied to the whole empire or, you know, represented the entire empire. So when... When, in, in, when you're talking about in church history, when you're talking about in theology, when you talk about ecumenical, you're talking about the, the, the entire church. So in ancient times, when you know they're talking about three ecumenical creeds, th- seven ecumenical councils, they, those were like the Council of Nicaea, um, the Nicene Creed. And we'll get in, we can get into like what the three creeds are, what the seven councils are more specifically. I think it's helpful here, but um, ecumenical meaning, they included and represented and were binding on the entire church, not just the Western church, not just the church in Jerusalem, you know, that kind of is, is the idea. So, you know, the ecumenical movement today, that's people who are working towards unity across the entire church. So I don't know if you want to add anything. That's kind of how I would like quickly summarize what ecumenical means Uh, yeah, my only addition would be uh, that, you know, ecumen- ecumenical is sort of like bringing together everybody, like you're saying. Like I think of um, when it. I was a youth pastor, for example, uh, we had like an ecumenical uh, citywide prayer gathering. So like once a month on Thursdays, um, a bunch of pastors from various churches around Downers Grove would come and pray at our church together for the city, for our people. Um, that God would work. And so that was like ecumenical in the sense that, you know, there were some Lutheran, Baptist, um, I don't know if there was Catholic or not, but there was there was just some like other denominations represented that, um, you know, are outside of your tradition. But it's it's ecumenical. It's, um, you know, it's, I don't know how else to put it other than that. Um, yeah. But, you know, we mentioned a couple minutes ago, you know, catechisms to catechize, to, um, to train, um, you know, especially within tradition. And I guess what, you know, maybe that's a word that people also don't know, um, to a catechism, to be catechetical. Some examples of catechisms would be the Westminster, um, larger and shorter catechisms, um, the Orthodox catechism, the, the Heidelberg catechism. And what these are essentially are, are, are tools, they're methods for teaching and training doctrine um, to teach children and, and new believers, but, but often children. And it's, it's usually set up in a question and answer format. So, you know, like, what is the chief end of man is like question number one of the Westminster. And it's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so part of the point of question and answer is it's, it's memorization. And by memorizing, it's committing to heart, um, the truths of scripture. Like I have a copy of the Westminster confession, and both catechisms and on the catechism when you when you when you're looking at the answer like it has tons of footnotes that are citing the different sources in scripture that this comes from it's not like it's coming um, out of nowhere in a vacuum but it's like this is where we see that this is the chief end of man this is where we see um you know what the the purpose is of the ninth commandment or or whatever it might be that's being asked um, so that's, I don't know if it was helpful to define catech- catechism. I'm guessing that was one of the words that you were 
maybe wanted to define. Yeah, and so catechetical use of these things, the, you know, the, the the three creeds and the seven councils are not catechisms, you know, like right. as documents, but but using the creeds and the scriptural insights of these councils in a catechetical way it, to affirm them, to confess them as as true, and to use them catechetically to to use them for teaching and training in in doctrine. So. Next, the three creeds, the three ecumenical creeds. Well, what are they? The Nicene, the, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed are, are typically, especially here in the West, what we refer to as the, the three ecumenical creeds. They are the three creeds that are the, the most widely used. Um, I, I, I don't say like universally because in the East... The Apostles' Creed is, is not used quite as much. And then also the Athanasian Creed, it, it, it's originally a Latin creed. Um, so it's not, you know, it wasn't originally in use, you know, in both East and West, it's my, it's as far as I know. But, but certainly dogmatically and doctrinally, both East and West across, across traditions are able to affirm the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Um I would say we should like recite slash read those creeds now, but that would take a long time, especially because the Athanasian <laughs> Creed is extremely Super long. long. <laughs> um, I don't know how. I don't know how people could could memorize that. It's it's very long, and it's and it's. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Athanasian Creed, but it's. I have, yeah. It's um it's a mouthful, but anyway, the seven ecumenical councils were from from the I think the first one. Oh man, the th- like three twenty five or something up through the I think the last one was in the six hundreds or something. But so ecumenical again across the whole church, across the whole empire. Um, when there was a doctrinal controversy, controversy dispute, um, you know, you think of the Arians teaching that Christ was not fully God. They need to be that the church needs to come together, hash that out, figure out what Scripture teaches, and then proclaim it so so the bishops representing all of the church across the whole known world came together in in these seven councils throughout history um throughout patristic and early church history to hash out doctrinal disputes so there was the divinity of christ the divinity of the holy spirit um you know what the incarnation looks like what does it mean for christ to be fully god and fully man how does that happen um questions about icons and the use of images in worship all these different uh issues that come up i don't know if i could name all seven i think it's nicaea i I was trying to think of them nicaea constantinople ephesus chalcedon nicaea 2 constantinople 2 constantinople 3 i don't know i I don't know if that's true but um (laughs) um anyway that's i guess that's kind of lose you know a little bit of a rabbit trail but so those are the those are what the creeds and councils that they're referring to are um hopefully that kind of makes sense so they encourage the ongoing like we said affirmation confession and catechetical use of the three creeds and the scriptural insights that come from the seven ecumenical councils um and so why are these important like so why is it that we encourage like why are they encouraging the ongoing affirmation Mm -hmm. confession and use catechetically of these documents like what what's the Mm -hmm. purpose like what 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 would we gain from 
recovering these things. Right. And I, I think that, you know, not to sort of cop out, but their explanation in the, in the, the next sentence is really the best way to put it. We believe that these confessional documents express well, dot, 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 the deposit of faith taught in Holy Scripture and received by the church throughout space and time. So these documents, these creeds, the, the, what the councils have proclaimed, they are not scripture. They are representative, representative of scriptural teaching on specific topics in the case of the councils or in terms of summarizing the faith in terms of the creeds. And we are able to use these or we ought to be using these documents for the purpose of um, remaining orthodox, remaining orthodox for teaching, <laughs> for confessing, for proclaiming what it is that the the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as Jude one or two says, um, what Let me it give is. Give you an example, maybe. Maybe I'll give you an example. Did you see in the news a couple weeks ago? I'm sure you saw it on my Twitter because I thought it was hilarious. There was a guy on Fox News that essentially said like. Babies aren't born sinful. It's impossible to inherit a sin nature. Did you see that, basically? Yes. Yeah, so something like that, if someone were to say that, if, some, if someone was going to stand up and say that in a church, uh, you know, it doesn't sound very biblical. And you could probably find in Scripture um, where that's true. But also, we've had councils and c- confessions and creeds that talk about why that is not true. And so, again, it helps us to remain orthodox. It helps us to remain faithful to what Scripture teaches. Definitely. And it allows us to operate in a framework of the great traditions that they're, that they're referencing in this document of the whole church, not just a part of the church or not just a certain tradition in the church, um, and yeah, you know, I mean, I think if, you, if you're not familiar with the creeds, one of the m- most valuable, like, relatively little things that, that I think I've done as far as my, my, my church, you know, practice and, and worship practice and stuff is, is memorizing the Apostles' Creed. Um, mm. it's, it's just, it's short. It, there's, you know, it's not as fleshed out as the Nicene Creed. It's not as long as the Athanasian Creed. So it, it's just a really helpful tool. And it really, really puts forward, you know, what do we believe? Um, and and it's, it's being able to recite it as a church body, being able to recite it, um, you know, in terms of if you're engaged in conversation with someone who's asking you about the faith, it, it's, it's amazing to be standing in, you know, we've talked before about like the river of church history mm-hmm. and the and the the tradition that that flows down through through time, um, and, and to be able to hold fast to the faith that is not new to us and is not different for us um, that our our ancestors in the faith, which you know, I don't know if we really speak that way a lot, but we really should because that's how Paul talks about our our relation to Abraham is is that we are literally his yeah. his descendants by faith, you know, and, and it's really powerful just to hammer home that familial reality that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, in his body. And but, you're closer to them than your actual family. Yeah. Because especially if your actual family is not a part of, you know, if, if we jump back just a bit where it says, 
Um, if they have repented and believed in Christ, they are brothers and sisters together in one body. If you have family members who haven't done that, you are closer to absolute strangers on the other side of the world than you are to your own family, which is a reality I don't think we ponder quite enough. Certainly, in, in a, certainly spiritually and certainly in the future, right. uh, we, to come. We will, we, that will be like, like fulfilled for us um, right. you know, as, we, as we enter into glory one day. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, it's really cool. And I, and I love the creeds. I love learning about the councils. Um, it, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Cause I know that we've had an episode about it, but maybe everybody hasn't, um, listened to that episode, which mm-hmm. you should. Um, but <laughs> let's, let's see you recite the apostles creed from memory. Can you do it? Okay. Yeah. The apostles creed. I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. uh, After three days, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Oh, man. There we go. Just in case people were wondering, that's an example of a creed. Yeah. That is that is one of the three ecumenical creeds. And and even, you know, we, we, we have a whole episode walking through the Apostles' Creed. So obviously that would really flesh this out. But even just listening to it, uh, you know, I, th- I think it, it's fairly clear, like, the benefit of affirming, confessing, and using for teaching the Apostles' Creed. You know, yeah. because it, it just puts forward sort of the the main points of the faith, the main points about God and man. And, and it just in a very, I guess, straightforward way expresses it, you know, confesses mm-hmm. it really. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think that um, it's really cool because I think the creeds and yeah. the councils are cool. So <laughs> cool. Well, let's move on to the last point. You want to right. run her down? Number eight. Article 8, we believe that Baptist worship should be anchored in Holy Scripture and informed by the liturgical practices of the historic church. We believe that Christian worship should be Word-centered, capital W, Word-centered. In worship, we read, preach, sing, pray, and show forth, through the ordinances, the Word of God. We further believe that Baptist worship could benefit from incorporating historic practices such as lectionary readings, the liturgical calendar, corporate confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, the recitation of scriptural and historic prayers, especially the Lord's Prayer, and the corporate confession of the faith expressed in the ecumenical creeds and other confessional documents. Lucas says he wants to be a Baptist again after reading that one. (laughs) If, (laughs) oh man, if all Baptists worshiped this way, it would be a lot easier. (laughs) um and so so yeah in you know the first sentence is is really the claim baptist worship should be anchored in holy scripture and informed by the liturgical practices of the historic church so not to beat a dead horse but really this is just it it pretty obviously follows from the whole aim of this document and this the project of the center for baptist renewal is to center the or situate, I guess is a better word, the Baptist tradition in the tradition of, of the church, more broadly speaking. Um, so as far as worship goes, 
to be informed by the practices of the historic church because Baptists didn't just exist out of nowhere. They're not the only church. They are part of the one church, which has 2,000 years of historic practice. Sometimes those practices aren't always the best. Sometimes those practices are mandated by scripture and a lot of times there's stuff in between you know and Mm -hmm. um that you know what practices should be retained what could be adapted that's a whole different conversation that they're not trying to have here um and that we don't have time or or uh expertise for really but definitely i this is one of my favorite articles that i've that we've read (laughs) up to this point um and you know it's funny like I read through the the examples of practices that they that they give lectionary readings, liturgical calendar, corporate confession of sin, assurance of pardon, um, also known as absolution, reciting scriptural and historic prayers, um, corporately confessing the faith. These are all elements of Anglican liturgy. So I'm just like, mm. yeah, and and yeah. I and it's just it's just all good stuff. And it's not ex- they're not exclusively they're not unique to Anglicanism, but. Um, so maybe that's a word that we also probably should define because I, I, I know that when I first heard liturgy, talked about liturgical worship, I didn't necessarily know what that meant fully. Um, and I think a reality that we often forget too is even if you don't have a liturgical church, so if you think about like a high church, maybe an Anglican church is a good example. Um, that's not to say that you don't have a liturgy because even if you don't come from a liturgical church background, you still do have a liturgy. For lack of a better words, liturgy could just mean um, the order of your worship or the way in which you worship, the way that a service mm-hmm. is structured, um, the movements from one to the next. That's those are all pieces of yeah. of your liturgy, and that kind of goes and, back to you know, what what we said earlier about being traditioned, whether we right. think about it or not. We we, right. we do things in a certain way, and and that is sort of you know, if you can think of it this way, like little L liturgical, even if it's not an explicit liturgy that we're following every Sunday or whatever. Yeah. And I know Lucas, you never took Dr. Johnson and I think you probably are kicking yourself for not having done it because I think you would really enjoyed maybe not then, but especially now, like, so in his classes, he talked a lot about liturgy. In fact, one of the, one of our assignments over the course of the semester was to um, get in groups with people and we had to um, essentially, research a liturgy of the world because his point was that we're not liturgy isn't just found in in christian worship but it's it's everywhere so we had to find you know some people said like the liturgy of soccer i'm pretty sure me and my group did like a liturgy of um like weddings um not and not just like the movements of a wedding ceremony but like everything that goes into you know purchasing a dress and um, you know, bridesmaids and best men, because it's like there's a certain order that people follow. And I'm not saying step one, two, three, four, but I'm saying like when you think about what you see at a wedding, a lot of weddings are pretty similar because there's a liturgy to it. Um, yeah. You know, and that's also like to... a, a funny example. Sorry to, to cut you off, like because no, there there's literally a church liturgy for mer- for holy matrimony. Right. You know, in in many tra- you know in liturgical traditions, you, you know when they're officiated by a, a clergy and it's done in a, in a church setting, it's, it, it literally is a cert, you know, it's in the, it's in the book of common prayer, the service for holy matrimony. Right. And, it, but it's also interesting because that, that extends beyond the, the, the church context because of all the other 
cultural pieces, which aren't necessarily good or bad. Some are probably bad. Some are probably good. A lot are probably neutral. But, like, there is this whole process that goes beyond just the actual ceremony the day of. But preparing, you know, arguing with the in-laws, you know, figuring out who's going to pay for this and, and preparing the colors and, and the reception and renting this and buying a dress, like you're saying. And, and um, it is interesting to think about how that, that's a good example is what, I'm, is what I wanted to say because it has the more churchly context as well as the more ge- sort of generic context that you're getting at. Right. And I think, it, you know, as to, to refer it back to what they're saying here, like the reason that it's important to be anchored and informed by these practices is because, um, like I sort of mentioned, like there are churches that aren't very liturgical and like, you know, they don't, they don't do these things that it's outlining. And that's again, not to say that you don't have a liturgy, but your liturgy probably isn't very robust. And let me just, you know, let me just talk about maybe, I don't know the exact percentage I'm making it up. 90% of churches in America, you come in, maybe you have a time of greeting, you sing like three songs you give the offering while announcements are happening. You have the pastor give a sermon. You close with a song, and then you leave. For a lot of churches, that is your liturgy. That is the function, the flow, the the way that you conduct worship. And it's not to say that that can't be helpful, can't be instructive, um, but more than that, there is a way in which we can, you know, benefit from incorporating these historic practices. And I won't read the list again. Um, but there, there's something to be said, like when I've been in churches that are more liturgical, and it's actually interesting, in our age group, there is a growing number of people desiring more robust liturgical worship. Um, and that's probably in part because of just a lack of real mm. structure, a lack of historic structure with the church, um, something that actually looks more maybe like the world, um, you know, maybe it's more comfortable yeah. for someone who might be visiting. Um, and so to, to be renewed to this sort of worship style is is something that many you know millennials many people our age are finding um great satisfaction in to be able to worship because again the church is not just the the people that are alive here today but the people of all times and so in in a way when we worship our god on sunday mornings we're worshiping with all the saints of all times the ways in which they even worshiped and there's something i think pretty cool about thinking like these are words that were said not just by Jesus but also by people for thousands of years and we're continuing to say them, proclaim them, believe them and take them out into the world as we seek to accomplish the great commission. Um so yeah, I'm all for, you know, liturgical worship to have more robust um you know, song selection, more robust even even if you just gave greater consideration to why you do what you do. That was something that like I often did, um, you know, both at the church where I was a youth pastor, but even in other churches that I've been in. Why are we doing the things that we do? What is the reason? Um, if we don't have a good reason, maybe we should think about possibly adapting or changing or tweaking, or at least maybe coming up with a reason why we do it this way. If it's just because that's the way we've always done it, well, maybe that's the way that you've always done it in this building, but it's not the way that we as the church have always done it. Um, and so there's something to be said for thinking about these things and to um, be reoriented to them. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, and participating in the liturgical practices of the historic church, as they say, is a way to, it, I mean, it gives you a reason, you know, it, and that reason could be, you know, twisted to, oh, well, this is how I think the church has always done it, which just makes it good. But 
realistically, like in what, if you actually evaluate it, well, there, there's reasoning that the church has always done it this way. It's because when we walk through lectionary readings, we're walking through the witness of God written down in the Bible over the course of a year or, or three years right. or whatever. When we follow the liturgical calendar, oh, it's because we are observing and recognizing the rhythm of life that we see through the coming of Christ, the the resurrection of Christ, the the you know, and and all of that. Oh, and we when we confess our sins together, oh, we're we're recognizing our sinfulness before God as communities and as individuals, but we're also fulfilling what we're told to do in, you know, I think of James five, we're told to confess our sins to one another. You know, when we're mm-hmm. when we're receiving absolution, when we're when we're when we're receiving the assurance of pardon, we're being reminded that like what we loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. What we bind on earth has been bound in heaven. That that the the church has been given the keys to the kingdom, and that we can trust that we have received God's pardon. You know, after we confess, and and it's it you know it goes on and on. But um, those are practices that are worth keeping and that have been kept by more liturgical traditions for the important reason that they communicate the gospel truth in the service right. to people um, who, are, who are there, who are participating. And and whether or not, you know, in, sure, like in 20 years, would I love to walk into any Southern Baptist church and they're using a book of common prayer, <laughs> but just not baptizing <laughs> babies? Sure. That, that'd be cool, I guess, as, as an, someone who believes in the importance and the usefulness and the you know, biblical witness that the Book of Common Prayer represents. But that's not what I think, you know, from sort of an outsider looking into this manifesto. That's not what I, you know, I'm not going to knock them if that's not their goal. Like, what what, what I like is, again, situating the Baptist tradition in the tradition of the Christian church more broadly. So what does that mean? Oh, why don't we follow a liturgical calendar? What does it look like? Let's study these calendars, see what's up. Oh, how can we implement that here? Like, that's, I think, a huge step in the right direction. I think the biggest step... I'd rather see you, like, taking those steps Mm -hmm. than just ignoring them as, like, oh, that's just, like, empty religion. Those are just dumb practices or whatever. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I'm still going to say the best step is to just step into a historically rooted tradition, i.e. Anglicanism. But um, I also recognize that there are a diversity of, of traditions in the one church, the one body of Christ. And I think that um, this is a good example of what they were saying earlier with B- Baptists having much to learn from the tradition as well as much to contribute, which is, right. you know, Baptist traditions don't typically have these liturgical practices very highly uh, used or, or regarded. So, so that's something that they can gain from the tradition. But that doesn't that doesn't need to be an aggressive thing or a way to sort of like, like some kind of weird, like interdenominational colonization <laughs> of like erasing Baptist identity, you know, like, like, I don't know. There's, yeah. It, it can be, obviously this conversation can go some weird ways, especially like, like we're doing now when we're talking about it with someone who's not a Baptist reading this, like it, it can, it can be taken weird ways, but it doesn't, it shouldn't be because it's it's really it's really good stuff what we're talking about when we're talking about participating in being anchored in holy scripture and informed by the historic church in our worship as they say um i think it's just a really good 
goal and a really good desire. And it's really exciting to see people really working to to promote that in in the church, broadly speaking, whatever tradition they may be from. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for today, I guess, I mean, as far as this goes. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to get into the last three. So next week's episode, yep. we'll, we'll do 9, 10, and 11. And 10 and 11 especially. I mean, they're, they're super good. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, so for today, I will close us with um, a section of, the, uh, of today's midday prayer service from the Book of Common Prayer. Um, so let's pray. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. O Lord, hear our prayer, and let our cry come to you. Let us pray. Blessed Savior, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms. Grant that all the peoples of the earth may look to you and be saved for your tender mercy's sake. Father of all mercies, you revealed your boundless compassion to your apostle St. Peter in a threefold vision. Forgive our unbelief, we pray, and so strengthen our hearts and enkindle our zeal that we may fervently desire the salvation of all people and diligently labor in the extension of your kingdom through him who gave himself for the life of the world, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast or send us an email at doxologypodcast.com at gmail.com lots of ats in there uh for any (laughs) feedback questions episode ideas that we can cover in the future um we'd love to hear from you uh with any thoughts that you have on on today's episode also again just a reminder check out the center for baptist renewal check out the new book they just they just got published baptist in the christian tradition um sign up for our newsletter if you'd like to get a weekly um, roughly weekly, perhaps more, but generally weekly uh, update on just what episodes are coming up, what's going on in in terms of the of the podcast and where what we're up to. Um, please also check out logos.com/doxologypodcast. Huge thank you and shout out to Logos for sponsoring us again. And we look forward to hearing from you on social media as well as uh, seeing you the next time we release an episode. Peace. Peace.